Welcome, everybody, back to the Era of Seaweed Brain podcast, where we speak to the incredible cast and creatives involved in making season one of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Today, we are being joined by an excellent brand new special guest, the epic Jules O'Loughlin, director of photography. Stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Jules. You DP'd episodes three, four, and seven of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Erica. Great to be talking to you guys. Great to you uh, as well, Carter. Let's talk about Percy Jackson. Yeah, this is the part of the podcast where we bombard you with questions about your life and your career. Let's go! You have worked on many projects that are are near and dear to our heart, not just Percy Jackson. You were on season one of C on Apple TV, which our listeners know is like one of the most important seasons of television to me ever. You also worked on Miss Marvel. You obviously worked on Black Sails. DP, it stands for Director of Photography, also sometimes called Cinematographers. That's right. Um, This is not necessarily a role that everybody who listens to our podcast is familiar with. So when did you learn about what a DP was and you were like, this is it, this is the thing I'm going to do in TV and film? Well, yeah, I mean, I learned about it when I was still at school uh, and I didn't really know what, you know, director of photography was. I, I was from an early age, uh, from the age of seven, actually, I, uh, my father gave me my first camera. We went on a European uh, vacation with uh, many of my siblings. I'm the youngest of 10 children. And um, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the youngest of 10. And my eldest brother was rowing in the World Cup in Lucerne in Switzerland and it was back in, gosh, when was it? This is going to age me, 1976. And uh, there were about eight of us siblings that went. Two of them didn't uh, because they were older and not doing other things. Uh, and we went for this trip through Europe. Uh, and at the end of it, we, um, we, we rocked up in, in Lucerne to watch my brother row the World Cup. But, um, my fa- yeah, my father gave me a camera. And, uh, and so I started uh, taking photographs at quite a young age and, and became very interested in photography and then fell in love with movies. And at some stage, I mean, I don't know when it was, but it was probably, probably my late teens that I started to think about photography and movies and like who actually, who does the photography on a movie? And, um, and it's this person called the cinematographer. And, um, and, uh, and so that's when I became interested in it, but it wasn't until, you know, until my late twenties, I guess, that I actually decided that I might go into the film industry and, and uh, pursue this idea of becoming a cinematographer. Um, I actually I left school and I did other things. Uh, I had I had a I had a career as a as a in the financial markets, and I put myself through law school and um, I did various things. My, my my father was a great supporter of the arts, but uh, was he was that old school? You got to get a degree, you got to become a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And so I came to cinematography kind of late. Um, I went to uh, film school, started my, the first film school I went to, 
I think when I was 31. And then I went to the National Film School in Sydney, the Australian Film Television Radio School, uh, when I was 30, yeah, 33, I think I was. So I, I came to the film industry a little later in life. Oh, that's great. Did any of your other nine siblings end up in the arts? I'm so curious. <laughs> well, what, one of my sisters is, a, is an artist. She's a painter. But that, let me, let me think, because I've really got to think about it because there's a lot of them, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so I'm the, I'm the only one that ended up in the film industry. Uh, but she is an artist, and that's about it. But the rest of them, yeah, doctors and lawyers and all that kind of jazz. Classic youngest sibling, I'm going to pivot and do the arts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And from, from this decision to start working in film and this, this interest in, in photography, when did you become involved in the, in the Schottsberg cinematic universe, as Daphne well, once coined it? What, what is it? The, 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 the Schottsberg, the Schottsberg cin- cinematic universe? Cinematic, oh, I love it. I love it. So in around 2012, I think it was, or 2011, mm-hmm. I shot a film called Wish You Were Here. Uh, which got into the Sundance Film Festival. Wow. And, um, and it got me a little bit of notice, you know, kind of on the international scene. I got a US agent. And um, uh, another cinematographer, Lucas Etland, was actually setting up Black Sails. He was involved in the early stages of Black Sails with Dan, and he was looking around for a partner. So what happens in, in, in the movie world is that there is usually one cinematographer or one director of photography but in tv and especially the bigger tv shows uh there are two and we what we do is we leapfrog mm-hmm. so i might be shooting episode one and the uh, and the other cinematographer will, will be prepping episode two and then when he or she goes to shoots episode two then i'd start prepping for episode three and so we kind of tend to leapfrog it's not always the case in tv sometimes you do have a single cinematographer mm-hmm. that, that shoots the entire show uh, but often uh, on the bigger ones, but like Black Sails, you'll have two. And so Lucas was looking around for a, um, a partner, uh, uh, someone to, to work with him and, um, and work on the show and, and leapfrog with him as the alternate DP. And he saw my film, Wish You Were Here, and he also saw uh, the first film that I shot back in Australia, which was a, a war film called Kokoda, and he loved what I had done with those films and he gave me a call and interviewed me and um, and the rest is history. And so that was that was my first foray into out of Australia and into international TV and um, movies. So, uh, and I think, what was that, 2013 that we shot uh, the first season of Black Sails? So, and that was in, as you know, it was in, um, in South Africa, in, in Cape Town, and I did two seasons on Black Sails and then subsequently went on to do C with Dan Schatz and John Steinberg, the two showrunners. And then after C, it was The Old Man and season one and then Percy, of course, and now uh, season two on The Old Man. So I've been, uh, I've been part of the family for quite a few years. Absolutely. And that leapfrogging, I'm guessing that's because of the schedule of TV and how fast it goes. Well, it's, it's the schedule, but also often the complexity of Black Sails was a really big show and a lot of visual effects, uh, a lot of big action sequences, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of everything really. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's always schedule driven, but it's also the complexity of the show and being able to prep your episode, your upcoming episode, often with a new director 
I mean, I have done a TV show where I was the, the only DP and it's, it's pretty full on. You know, you're, you're shooting and then you start to prep the next episode while you're shooting and you might have a new director come in and it's a lot of work. And, and I think, you know, depending on the size of the show, you can really get stretched. And the beauty of leapfrogging is that you go into those apps fully prepped, knowing what you're going to do. And then it gives you the, the ability then to work really quickly and to work really effectively. Do you think that you can say a little bit more about what that collaboration looks like, particularly in the context of Percy Jackson? Like, what were the things that were standardized across? What were the areas where the two of you might have been more independent in the decision-making and crafting process? Yeah, so on Percy Jackson, my fellow DP was Pierre Gill. To answer your question about, you know, the collaboration between two cinematographers and where you kind of pair off. So I guess the most important thing is that you both have to be making the same show, you know, and that comes down to pouring over reference material, working with the production designer who was Dan Hanna as to what the show, the look of the show is, and also um, heavily involved in that, of course, John Steinberg and Dan Schatz, the two showrunners. So the, the, the really important thing is that you're, um, you know, you're going on this journey uh, and you need to be travelling the same path more or less. There's a roadmap to how the show should look or generally how, how all the creatives want it to look. Because the thing about television, it's really interesting, it's, it's, it's quite different to shooting a movie where you have a director who's really at the apex of the creative kind of aspects of the show, how it ostensibly looks. You know, that's, that's what I'm interested in um, as a cinematographer. How does it look? And, and the director is invariably driving a lot of those, those decisions. But on a TV show, you've got a lot more people uh, in the pot making the decisions, you know, and, and you've got a couple of showrunners. You've also got the directors coming in. You've got the DPs, two DPs, the production designer. So in a way, it's a bit more of a collaboration, the sense of working with more people to find what that roadmap is and then to, to go on that journey. So um, Pierre and I had to, I guess, sit down and, and work out what the, the look of the show was and, and which direction it takes. And that was the most important thing for me. But Pierre kicked off the show. Pierre did Eps 1 and 2. I, I was 3 and 4. And then within your episodes, you can, of course, branch off and you can, you can go down, you know, what I call side alleys, but as long as you're still coming back to that main pathway. And that comes through working with the new director, you know, talking about things that you may want to do differently. There may be, like, for instance, there, there, there was some lensing that I did on EPS 3 and 4, uh, and then again in 7, where I, I deviated from our standard lenses, Cook Anamorphics, which were the main lenses of the show. And I brought in specialty lenses to do particular scenes. It was a flashback scene of young Percy in the pool. Remind me, guys, what episode was that? The beginning yeah. of episode four. Yeah, the beginning of episode four, right? So so for that, I wanted... Thank you. So for that, I wanted a slightly different look. And so I brought in some black wing um, spherical lenses to shoot, you know, young Percy in the pool because I just wanted to give it a, a slightly different, slightly kind of nostalgic kind of look to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there, are, so that's just one example where you can go off piste, you know, and 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 travel a different road for for part of it. But it is, it's it's a lot of fun 
when you are working with another DP, because it's really rare otherwise for us DPs, unless you're working with the second unit director of photography. It's not often that we get to work with other cinematographers. And that's one of the aspects of TV that I really love is being able to work with another cinematographer. So yeah, a lot of fun. That's so cool. The thing about the different lens for the nostalgic flashback is so cool. You worked a lot on fantasy projects, like the ones we listed earlier. And obviously Percy Jackson is, it's a bit of a fantasy show. It's a bit of a kid's show. Is there anything in the language of the photography and setting up the shots or like any, any DP secrets to like what it means to shoot a fantasy show or something that, that is a little bit more like high fantasy where there's there's magical elements and you're creating this like big sweeping fantastical world it's all driven by story right it's all driven by the script and whether it's fantasy or drama or or a war film or what have you it all all starts with those words on the page but i I guess and i'll say this it was important for dan and john to keep percy grounded that this world that that it wasn't going to go into kind of um ultra real kind of fantasy world that it, that it had to to you know to a great extent it had to feel real you know and and we had to keep the the, the show grounded and of course we go into fantastical worlds like Hades you know the underworld it, it's fantasy but but at the same point it, it, it was always important that we didn't go too far with the with the lighting and the photography to make it too fantastical. But I, I guess when it comes to fantasy, the first thing, you know, as a, as a cinematographer, we are ostensibly responsible for the lighting on a movie or a TV series. That's, you know, we're uh-huh. responsible for the, for the photography, which includes the camera work, but also uh, the lighting. And, and lighting is, I guess, one of the more important aspects of fantasy is is, um, is how you how you light the show and how beautiful or how fantastical or how surreal uh, it is really is driven a lot by how you light the show. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, there were there were times where you know we could really push the envelope, and there are times where a lot of the time where you've got to keep it in control and you've got to keep this show grounded in the real world. That makes perfect sense. That sense of the groundedness in reality is what makes Percy Jackson Percy Jackson. So it was really cool to hear you say that, that that was like a conversation that was had across the production team. Yeah, I mean, for instance, there were, there were a few things that I tried in, in post in the, in the grading of Percy. So when, when, once, you, once you shoot the movie or the show and and uh and it's cut together they do the edit and they do the sound and all that what we do as cinematographers we come back and we time the film or we color the film or grade the film and there are a few things that i tried in post for instance putting a sun flare in at a particular moment um and then dan would say listen that's just you know what like like don't don't do that because it feels without without that it feels more grounded. Like there was a scene when they're, they're going past the Talia tree, okay, and um, they, they're starting out on their quest. And the time of day, it just felt, to me, it just felt a little too kind of middle of the day, you know what I mean? And I just wanted, I guess, to give it a little bit more of a fantasy aspect, you know, as, they, as, as they're, they're crossing 
the, the point where they're leaving camp half-blood and they're going into the world and they're going on this quest. And so I introduced like a digital sun and a flare and I spoke to Dan about that and he said, you know what, it's, it's like a, John and I really like the fact that it's just, it's just like a, just a normal sunny day, you know, and, and to bring in that flare, it just, it just it didn't feel grounded anymore when you did that and then I went, okay, cool, not a problem, let's, Let's lose the flair. Let's lose the sun. And that's that thing where sometimes you want to vibe with with something a little bit more fantastical. And 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 it's being. It's, I guess it's knowing when to do that and when to not. And also to have the steady hands of someone like you know Dan to go. You know what? Let's let, let's not do that because at this point I just want to keep it real. Just want to keep them in the in in the real world at this moment. And so it's a it's a dance. It's often a yeah. dance. And you and these conversations happen on set as well while you're shooting. Yeah. You try something or you're, you light in a particular way. And it's not often, but Dan will come up and say, listen, why are you doing that? I'm doing that for this particular way. Oh, okay, I, I get it. That's a, that's a really good, you know, that's a really good reason to be doing this. Or other times it's like, yeah, maybe you can consider this. Okay, sweet. And so it's a, it's a constant kind of collaboration. Mm-hmm. That's what filmmaking is. So. <laughs> Gosh, that's just so cool. I think I have a feeling our <laughs> listeners are going to be like, oh my God, they cut one lens flare. Like that's how specific <laughs> the work is and that's how specific like Dan and John are. It's amazing. Like the, the confidence and the, the specificity of the vision you have to have to be a showrunner is so impressive to me. I think we want to talk to you about episode three in particular because we loved episode three. We were like shook by episode three, everything about the writing, the style, the production, the costumes, and it looked so incredible. There were many times where when the first time Carter and I, we like got on a Zoom or like a Zencaster link and we watched the screeners together, just the two of us. And we were like, we had to pause during episode three and be like, wow, this is beautiful. Like the way that she is sitting, that Jessica Parker Kennedy is sitting in this chair, it makes her look alone. And she also looks like a statue and she's in her living room, but and but the living room is so big and it's so dark and, and it looks like she wants people to be there because there's food everywhere and it's so cozy. But at the same time, she looks so lonely. We would love to hear like anything you have to share about <laughs> setting up those shots in Medusa's house in, in episode three, especially given what you just said about how to keep it grounded um, and not too fantastical when we get into this space that is like, okay, it's just a normal, nice, maybe 1950s home, but at the same time, it is also like a monster lair. Yeah, that's right. It was the, what was it called? The Gnome Emporium, I think was her establishment <laughs> or her house. Um, and Jessica, of course, who we worked with on, uh, on Black Sales and uh, on The Old Man. She was, uh, she was in The Old Man. Uh, season one and then is back for season two so uh she is awesome we love jess jessica of course being the producer there was uh, the little dance of of how much do we show how much do we show of her face mm-hmm. how much do we show of her hair uh which is really um it was her eyes and her hair were the two critical things how much does the audience get to see of this and it was a it was a discussion you know it was about uh uh, we have a, well, it, all, it all starts with costume. What are we going to put uh, uh, Jess in? What's the costume designer? What are the ideas behind this? How much of her face do we see? And then the type of veil uh, that she has over her face. How translucent is it uh, when I'm photographing it? 
you know, how much of her eyes will I be able to see or not see? And also the way it fell uh, on her face as well. Medusa's looking out the window. You know, we want to be over her left shoulder. So does the veil have to fall to the left or to the right? How much of her face do we get to see? Uh, all this stuff you, you've, you've got to know before the day, before you turn up on set, because once you start shooting, it's got to be fast, you know. So a lot of decisions have to be made. Beforehand. So, yeah, I mean, that was one of the big challenges was the reveal, you know, but also the challenge of the location because we shot the Emporium that was on location. Right, and it was an actual house. It was an actual house. It was outside of Vancouver. It was a single road to get into. So logistically, it was quite difficult because, you know, there's a lot of crew and there's a lot of trucks and there's a lot of equipment. We also had bears at that location. Um, yeah, and so, and several times there were bear sightings and one of the bears actually ended up uh, in the back of one of the electric trucks. So this is a fabulous photo that we have a bear lying, lying amongst all these uh, lighting cables. But um, the difficulty of, of that location, for me, it was very, very challenging outside with uh, with controlling light. So we had some really large trees outside. We were shooting there for a couple of days and, and when you shoot scenes over a couple of days, as a cinematographer, you have to somehow control the light because you need lighting continuity. And so that was really, that was really challenging because we couldn't get uh, machines in there with overhead scrims and silks and... And so we really had to time the particular times of the day that we could shoot in certain directions. So that was, that was challenging in itself. And then the interior was this, uh, it was this lovely old home and um, it, it wasn't a museum. I can't remember what they used it for, maybe events. Yeah, like it was like a historic residence or something like a that. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And, um, and Dan Hanna actually had this beautiful concept, uh, a bit of concept art uh, that he had made for the, the interior of that room. And um, it was very lush candles and warm lights and, and then daylight streaming through windows. And, and so as, as much as possible, I mean, that was, that was one of the, the, the pieces of concept art I went, wow, I just love that artwork and I really want to try and emulate what he has created in that artwork. And this is one of the, the, the processes that um, on a show like Percy is that you have mountains of, of concept art, um, you know, Hades Palace, here's some concept art for that, and um, Medusa's Lair, here's some for that. And, and often you deviate from that concept art because as a cinematographer you want to try something else or you want to do something a little different but for medusa's uh, for, for, for that particular room at the emporium i loved that artwork so much i thought i really want to try and emulate that as as closely as possible so it was great that dan had given me the you know i guess the key to the look of that uh, that particular um space yeah Ooh, should we talk about Hades' palace or like all of the underworld then? Because <laughs> Let's go. going into episode seven, 
Seven now we're just in the underworld. Now you're just in straight up fantasy land. Like we're literally in hell. Were you able to like pop off a little bit more with those like kind of f- fantasy lighting tricks or, or was there anything you were sort of able to like delve into a little bit deeper when it came to traveling through all those different sets? Yeah, I mean, listen, episode seven was was very challenging. It was um, uh, it was challenging for a number of reasons. One of, one of which was the sets what we were going to build, what was going to work photographically, what was going to be um, very challenging, what would work on the volume, what would work as a, actually as, as a physical mm-hmm. set. And luckily where our stages were, which are they're mammoth, they're called mammoth uh, stages in um, Burnaby in Vancouver. There's a part of that complex and it was this huge um, space uh, inside this warehouse. And we decided that uh, we would build, I think there were four sets that we built uh, there for the underworld. There was the River Styx, there were the Forests of Asphodel, Tartarus and, and the, mm-hmm. um, the Desert of Souls. Mm-hmm. And there was the approach to Hades Palace. And, of course, we had to shoot this episode within a given time frame. So all these sets were built not at one time they were ongoing. We were actually shooting on one set while I was still building another. But it, but if we had this um, this enormous stage in which to to fit four of our four or five of our uh, locations. And so one of the one of the challenges, for instance, I'll, I'll give you an example, was the forest of Asphodel, where we used real tree trunks. Oh wow! For the main part of the forest, and then on the sides, and then then I, I think. I would it'd probably about be about eighty meters by thirty meters. That was kind of like the area where the forest set was placed. And then on the outside of the forest, we had a painted backdrop, and the painted backdrop was a continuation <laughs> of the forest. Now, when you stand in the middle of that forest and you look out, uh, well, you point a camera out toward the painted backdrop, then the painted backdrop blended with the actual real forest. But if you were on the outskirts of that forest, then the painted backdrop becomes a painted backdrop. Mm-hmm. And so we had to be super careful with the way that we staged the action, that we had to put most of the action in the midst of that set because the closer you got to the painted backdrop, the more you give the game away. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing that we had to do was introduce a lot of atmosphere, a lot of smoke into that set as well to blend mm-hmm. uh, to blend the, the, the real tree trunks with the painted backdrop. There was real challenges there. Another big challenge was was Tartarus and how to render Tartarus. And Tartarus being, you know, it's an extension of the, the it's within the desert of souls. And desert being desert, it's um, you know, desert tends to look great when it has sun on it, a full sun, and it mm-hmm. looks kind of flat and, and less interesting when it's an overcast sky. And the, the challenge here was that we're in the underworld and there is no sun. There is no pinpoint mm-hmm. of light, right? It's a, it's a kind of a nondescript kind of sky. Not nondescript, but light it kind of emanates from the underworld in a way that, you know, I don't know. Can you guys tell me where it comes from? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> no, it comes from that. magic. It, it, comes it comes from, from magic, magic and Rick Riordan <laughs> said so. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So the challenge there was, and this is this is this was the 
the set that kind of would make me wake up at two or three o'clock in the in the morning in a cold sweat. You know, it was how do we like the desert? How, <laughs> yeah, how the hell do we like the desert? But make it interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, the obvious way in the, in the underworld is just it's an overcast sky and it's flatly lit, but it's not going to look great. So it was a it was a matter of you know, and is it is it dark like asphodel, and is it kind of dark and moody like the river sticks? And I really I just kept bumping on the feel of that. So in the end, I kind of pitched this idea that it wasn't a pinpoint of light like the sun, but it was a softer but much more directional type of light. So it's it's like you know to put it in 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 kind of film terms. It's a big lamp, which is softened, right? Mm-hmm. So it becomes, yeah. it goes from, at a distance, a smaller source, and a smaller source will create deep shadows to a larger source, but it's very mm-hmm. directional. So that way, you know, I could create contrast, but if you look at the, at the sand, you'll never see a deep shadow, a hard shadow uh, from, from sunlight. And, mm-hmm. and the other thing that I wanted to do is I, I didn't want it to be dark. I wanted, to, I wanted it to feel brighter there that it's a brighter kind of space um and and introduce atmos again and introduce particular like sand into the into the air and there was just so much of that um that we could do we could do physically because it's dangerous blowing sand in you know it gets in uh, in the actor's eyes and it makes it really hard for them to perform and the other thing with tartarus it wasn't a big set you know, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and that almost every direction that we looked, that we were shooting offset, except if you just shot down in, into the sand. So, so we had to be kind of inventive. We had to bring in kind of boulders and rocks that we could shoot into. Because listen, if you if every shot you do is a, has a visual effect component to it, it becomes super expensive. So. Um, so we call them, you know, free shots, freebies, uh, the ones where you don't have a visual effects component to it. Should we talk about going from a physical set to a virtual set, the volume? Absolutely. We would love especially, to hear about the volume. We would love to hear about the volume, especially because <laughs> I'm surprised, like you said, so many of those sets for the Underworld were with painted backdrops. And then obviously going into the interior of Hades Palace was definitely the volume, right? That's right. So the, the only um, location that wasn't on a set was Hades Palace. That was mm-hmm. shot on, on the volume. You know, shooting volume is very different to shooting on location or shooting a set. And it's a very steep learning curve. Uh, this was my first volume show. So uh, I was going to um, ask if Miss Marvel used the volume, but that makes sense. Yeah, not in Miss Marvel at all. There, there was no volume work in, in Miss Marvel. So this was my first foray into volume. And it's... Um, uh, the, I, I call the volume a harsh mistress. Well, the volume can be a harsh mistress. You know, it, can, it can be it can be a brutal space. Uh, um, unless you treat her well, it can be it can be tough. So, <laughs> but it's also a really rewarding and a really creative environment as well. So, for a cinematographer, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of kind of new things for us there where. You know, in any one day, you're, you're, you're doing the photography, you're, you're responsible for the camera work and you're responsible for the lighting of the set. But you also take part of the kind of design, production design uh, elements on board as well because from the get-go, 
uh, over a number of weeks, you're designing the space. That, that comes from concept and it comes from the production designer and what the showrunners want and, uh, and what the script dictates. But you're putting a lot more work into the actual design the, the particulars of the, of, of the space itself in the environment. So, for instance, in Hades Palace, you know, I had a lot of input into, you know, the reflectivity uh, of the walls and and how dark the walls, how black they were, and also the clouds, the sky, how does the, how does the sky look? You know, where is, I was going to say, Where's the sun? But there is no sun, of course, in Hades Palace. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, there Jules was waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning going, Where's the sun in the underworld? Oh my God, where's the sun? I'm just going down. So, um, and then on the day, so all this, all these ideas are going into the pot. The VFX guys go and they're actually building the virtual space. And then on the day, there are so many elements that you can change. Uh, and that you need to change because it doesn't work for the shot. So, for instance, that part of the wall, I need, I need it shifted, you know, towards the left because I need an opening uh, to the sky behind our players because I, I'm, you know, I want to motivate light from that direction. But not only motivate light, I want to actually be able to see the sky there. So I'm going to actually shift. I'm going to rotate. Mm-hmm the wall and now the clouds let's look at the clouds uh are they moving okay i want them to move a little faster than what they're doing the opacity of that wall there let's increase it you know and then the reflectivity of of the floor in the background it's not kind of blending with our real floor oh wow it's a dance but it's a dance that's got to be danced really quickly (laughs) Uh, because you're always under (laughs) time pressure but you all of a sudden you have all these other elements that you can manipulate and that you often need to manipulate. Did you feel like God? Did I feel like, well, (laughs) at times and other times I felt like the devil. Um, (laughs) And uh, and sometimes uh, like a a higher God would walk into my tent and uh, (laughs) like Dan Schatz and say, Jules, what are you doing with that particular thing there? Uh, and so then you realize that it's a pantheon of gods and, and uh, yeah. And we're so, in hell. <laughs> and currently we are in hell. <laughs> currently we're in hell because we're two hours behind schedule and, oh uh, and, and we need to get a wriggle on. It's a really interesting, rewarding, sometimes stressful uh, environment in which to work. And the other thing is for the for the more technical People, I'm sure you have uh, lighting people and photographers who listen to your podcast sure. and, uh, and understand the vagaries of, of, of photography. <laughs> but with our, with our volume set, we had, we had walls and it was kind of shaped like a, like a horseshoe. It was a horseshoe type shape. But we also had a ceiling on it uh, and the walls were 22 feet high and then we had this ceiling. And so what it meant that if you, if you were to put a car for instance, you were to do a car driving shot, or for instance, we did a, we did some bus work, and you have things within the car, like a windscreen that reflects ordinarily reflects the sky, then it reflects the the sky on the volume, which is fantastic. And originally, the idea came from you know uh, uh, the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian had this kind of silver reflective helmet, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. they decided, well, listen, we need a ceiling um, because we're going to see everything reflected in the helmet and it's going to be 
a mountain of visual effects work to kind of clean that up unless we have a ceiling. And that's where this idea for the, the, the ceiling for the volume kind of originated. But what that means for a cinematographer, okay, so the first time I walked onto the volume set, I, I, I looked at it and I looked up and I looked at that ceiling and I went, oh, my God, look how close it is. <laughs> you know, it's only 22 feet. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be fighting... I'm going to be fighting the inverse square law. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lighting thing, right? And what what basically what it's about is that often you just want your lights backed off. You want your lights, you know, quite a distance mm-hmm. away. And especially if it's something mm-hmm. like you're emulating something like the sun, you want that light as far away as possible. Because every every mm-hmm. every foot you get away from your light source. If it's a long way away, then you mm-hmm. don't notice the difference in the drop-off in light. But if it's very close, yeah. like a lamp and a table, you know, I've got, mm-hmm. I've got say, 20-foot candles of light hitting my face if, if the lamp is is one foot away. And now if I if I go two feet away, then I've got a quarter of that hitting me. And it's called, it's, mm-hmm. the rough equation, it's called, it's called the inverse square law. And my immediate thoughts were... Inverse square, yeah. It, the, the ceiling <laughs> is just too close. My lights are going to be too close to the action. And it's oh the my. biggest, it's one of the biggest challenges of the volume, if you have a ceiling, is that you have to overcome this problem of your lights just being often too close and it looking fake. And yeah. you've just got to you've got to pull tricks out of your hat to kind of get around uh, <laughs> that really big issue, and it's a big issue. And 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 so if I had my way, I would you know for season two, I'd say double the the the, the height of the walls and have a have a floating <laughs> ceiling. So we only bring mm. the ceiling in if we need the reflection, right? Otherwise, I have my own lights up there, but there's costs associated with that. So now for for episodes three and four, which uh, we did a sequence in a bus and we did a sequence in a train mm-hmm. and they were both shot on the volume. Mm-hmm. So there was a part of that bus sequence was shot on, on a real location outside of Vancouver, but all the action within was shot on volume. Now, the plates, we call them plates, photographic plates, were real plates. So they were shot on a highway for the bus scene and the other plates for the for the. Uh, for the train sequence, was shot on a um, on a proper uh, train track uh, with a with a camera mounted to a vehicle that could travel along that train track and do a three hundred and sixty degree array of, of plates. Now those plates need to be fixed and stitched together, and and so they're then played on the on the volume screen. Um, so uh, where am I going with this? So the ceiling, okay. So the ceiling is once again, it just becomes part of the the set within which you're, you're shooting. So the Medusa's lair, it was a cave ceiling. Now, if I'm not seeing the a part of the wall with my camera, then I can turn that part, any, I can, anything that's off camera, I can turn it actually into my own lighting fixture in a way. So, for instance, Medusa's yeah. Medusa's cab. We had um, we had fire, real fire on set. So I had four cauldrons on set, and then within the walls of the LED of the LED screens, there were the virtual fires. Now, if I'm not actually seeing, you know, say this this twenty foot section of the right hand side 
of the set, then I can put whatever mm-hmm. we call it, a, like a swatch or patch, whatever I design, I can put there, whether it be, um, you know, like a warm light. I created these big fireballs, which in the end I didn't kind of use. And I wanted the flicker of the flame uh, to play on the actors. And so, so I was thinking about putting those on the, on the virtual wall uh, uh, and using that as a kind of a lighting source because it's off camera. And so the, the volume set becomes this um, super interesting, really handy, uh, very challenging uh, space in which you can do so many great lighting tricks and so many cool things, um, but it also has its challenges as well. Knowing this is your first project on the volume, first of all, congratulations. I mean, it looks beautiful. Did you text anyone? Like, did you text any DP friends and you were like, what do I, like, do you have advice or like, what do I do about what the do ceiling? I do? Like, <laughs> That's it. Did you text yeah. Pierre at 3 a.m.? What do I do about the ceiling on the volume? <laughs> yeah, well, Pierre, he was, um, I think, actually, Pierre's first day on Percy Jackson shooting, the very day one of the shoot was uh, the New York. Uh, streets outside the Met, so he was uh, he was in the volume on mm-hmm. day one. But he had several months in which to test and and like he went in there super prepped and and uh, did an amazing job. Uh, this, I mean, one of the one of the hardest things to do in volume is to be in a terrestrial world with the sun, and by that I mean on the on the on the streets of. Uh, of New York or on, say, Tatooine under a real sky with a, mm-hmm. with a real sun, um, that's, the, that's the hardest thing mm. that you can do because you're dealing, as I said, you're fighting the inverse square law. The sun should be 93 million miles away, but it's only 22 feet away, right? So mm-hmm. it's a really, really challenging thing to do. That's, and I think it's the, the, the hardest thing to do is to be under a real sky um, well, sorry, whatever that sky may be, on Earth, under a blue sky with the sun up there and the actors or your characters are getting hit by, by sunlight. And that is, it's a, it's a really, really tricky and challenging thing to, to pull off. And so to that end, you, you actually try and avoid um, that kind of environment. So for Pierre uh, in New York, outside the Met, um, you know, there are a lot of tall buildings around and so it's kind of blocking, uh, it's blocking the sun, it's blocking the, the, the direct sunlight onto, um, onto the characters uh, and onto the set, that's the real set that you're shooting. And, um, but still it's, it's a very challenging thing to pull off because of that, that problem of the, of the ceiling just being so close to the action. I have learned so much in the last 50 minutes. Home. I just I feel like I just went to film school or like I took a semester in lighting design. <laughs> I, I just want to know how many potential cinematographers I've actually turned off. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my God. I don't want to do that. That just sounds way too stressful. They just don't want to work on the volume. They, they yeah. want to build sets. Yeah. We, we have to ask you just a little bit about the Poseidon and Sally scene in episode seven that is is just so beautiful carter what's our question like what do we have what do we want to know about it yeah let's talk about toby stevens of course i mean what a legend (laughs) oh what a what a beautiful man i i don't even know if we can ask one question about that we were watching that and and we're so astounded by everything about it like everything about it felt 
um, inevitable, but also like not obvious. Like the way that, for instance, like when Poseidon enters, the camera doesn't move for so long until they're already like 30 seconds into the conversation. And then you slowly like just pan out to reveal him. Yeah. What, what was interesting about shooting the scene? Like what, what did, were there any decisions that you made as you were prepping it or shooting it where you were like, oh, this is, we're making a choice here and this feels right. Um, <laughs> um I, yeah, I'm curious specifically if there were choices being made through the camera work to make us feel like we were in Sally's perspective or that we were specifically tracking Sally's journey through these flashbacks because we've been so much in Percy's journey and in Percy's head. And then this is very much like Sally's experience and Sally's story. And for the first time, we're seeing Sally without Percy in the past as she's having this conversation with yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the, the more important things that uh, you know, with camera work and as a cinematographer working with a director, is point of view. Is you know, it's whose point of view are you in? And 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 it was very much it had to be in Sally's point of view. You know, that was that was really important for for the scene and for the feel of it, and and for the for the audience to to connect with her. You know. So if you break point of view or you lead point of view, it's 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 harder for the for the audience to connect or keep that connection. Or so so that was the first thing that you know it's, it's very much in 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 Sally's point of view. But the thing about uh, the, the scene, I, I guess it had to be it had to be beautiful and it had to be subtle and it had to be emotional, you know, and um, and. There, there was this thing of, of, you know, Percy's father comes into that space and does Percy, does, 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 does Poseidon want to see Percy? And, you know, that whole play of, you know, that, that, that I guess that torment of, of, of a father wanting to connect with a son but not being able to and, and the, the, I guess the, the loneliness of Percy sitting across the way and not knowing what's going on with, with his mother and father and, but it was every everything like it was subtlety was the kind of name of the game, you know, and and mm-hmm. the the beautiful but subtle lighting, you know, the the, the transition, um, you know, before Poseidon comes in of of, of you know the, the light kind of changing and and getting darker and getting getting cooler and more blue, um, the rain outside, um, all these kind of uh, these these things that kind of that had to feed into, you know, had to support the scene, but had to feed into his character of Poseidon, and um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a wonderful, beautiful kind of poignant um, scene to shoot, and and so, you know, always with with these kinds of scenes, there's all this technical stuff kind of going on. There's lighting. It's like, okay, let's let's have a run through on the. Uh, on the dimming of the light and the transition of the light, and and uh, like, hey, let's practice the camera move, and, um, and 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 there's a point where you have to, and that's all kind of rehearsal. And then the actors come on on set, and you've got to give them the space. Like that's that's one of the most important things as a, a cinematographer and working with a director is giving the the, the actors the space with which to work in and, and to be able to work. Um, to get the best out of them, for that, that a space in which um, they can become very emotional. Um, it's um, it's you know often you've got to 
you've got to calm the crew down and go, okay, guys, let's all just, let's chill and let the actors now do their thing. You have had all this time to set this up. Now it's their time. Um, and we've got to be super respectful of that. And, and professional crews like the crew on Percy are um, super respectful of, of those moments, you know, and they were just wonderful. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the, it's the kind of the, the, the dance between the technical, the creative, and then the performance, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and everyone and everything has its place, but there's a moment where you just have to stop and let the actors do their thing. And they sure as hell pulled it off. So <laughs> that, that being a scene that is not anywhere in the books is such a massively big deal for the fandom. Like that one scene in that episode, episode seven, like has really like changed the canon of Percy Jackson forever. And so like, yeah. thank you for making it so beautiful that I've cried every time I've watched it. And I've seen it like <laughs> six times now. Well then we, I guess, I, I, I guess we all did our work from, from, you know, from director did that. to, to <laughs> actors to gaffer, grip, uh, costume, makeup, everyone, you know, if they're having that kind of effect uh, on you, Erica, then then I guess we've, we've, <laughs> we've had a good day at work. Yeah. Oh, as a fan, I was greatly serviced. <laughs> we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I mean, like we literally could talk to you for like eight hours. There, you did so much intricate work on these episodes. I we didn't. I have to say, like, just as a statement of gratitude, also for that shot of Percy and Annabeth lying perpendicular on the train. That I feel like has been in my dreams since I was a little kid, and getting to see that shot was chef's kiss wow that's cool thank you so much would you like to close us off with any advice you have to the the two dps who are listening to our podcast (laughs) (laughs) future lighting designers i guess uh follow your dream if you want to be a dp then then go for it and just put everything into it everything into it you've got to become kind of singularly focused it's such a um it's such a tough industry in, in, in many ways and very kind of competitive. And, and I'd say that with any uh, person wanting to, to be a director or, or a cinematographer or actor or anything, you've just got to, you've got to put everything into it and become kind of tunnel visioned in a way and, and until you kind of break in and get there. And um, you just got to work really hard at it. Uh, but it is incredibly rewarding and it's a, it's a wonderful industry to be a part of and you meet so many fabulous uh creative people and you get to work on uh some really awesome projects like percy jackson and the olympians so but just go for it yeah follow your dream do it heck yeah <laughs> i hope we get to do this again for season two of percy jackson <laughs> <laughs> look forward to talking to you guys again all right we appreciate you so much for being here and we will talk to y'all listeners next time great thanks erica thanks carter great to talk to you yes thank you so much